This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, by Daniel Kahneman. Some of us think a little more quickly than others, and some of us slow things down and think maybe a little bit more precisely. Some of us do both. Daniel Kahneman tells us how it all works. So, uh, Eric, uh, who, who recommended this book? Um, a, a gentleman by the name of Jason A. Staples, <laughs> doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I did recommend this book, didn't I? Uh, Derek Sivers recommended it on episode 202 of the Tim Ferriss podcast. But this was one of the five books that uh, that Jason actually, that, that you recommended to me. I asked for you to uh, to send me five books you thought it would be good for me to to read. And this this is the first one on the list for this year. So I'm actually curious as to why, why this one and... Um, uh, had you read it before? I have not read, I had not read this before, but I, I knew a lot of the book from a lot of my own training and, uh, also from listening to Daniel Kahneman being interviewed and tons of other work and, and, you know, reading and, and listening to, uh, to, to, uh, stuff from the, the field of behavioral psychology, uh, and, uh, and also behavioral economics, uh, the psychology of judgment, decision making, and uh, logical fallacies, and all this stuff—you know—a a lot of the stuff that that I, I've uh, spent a good amount of time on uh, over the last few years uh, intersects with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and uh, and and that whole uh, that whole group of of that whole circle of people around them. Uh, and this book is, of course, the basically the magnum opus, the the big summary of much of his research uh, and has been uh, pretty widely discussed since its release in 2011. Uh, and so I was very familiar with the book, but it was one that I'd, I'd wanted to read uh, for a while uh, in order to not just have familiarity with it, but to be uh, pretty, pretty fluent in it. Okay. And then you, you, why, why, why did you suggest it for me? Um, well, I mean, again, this is one of those books that I think, I think most people should read, uh, mm -hmm. even though there's some things in there that I don't agree with and that I think we need to take, we need to be careful about, uh, over, uh, overconfidence actually. And that's one of the things that, that he emphasizes in this book is you have to be, we have to be very, uh, rigorous about how we study things, uh, even where in some details, I think the, the, the experimental data has not always held up. There's certain things in terms of, uh, conclusions that we'll we'll talk about actually later in the show that haven't held up. By and large, the warnings in terms of how people think and how we think, how everyone who shares uh, human flesh and human nature tends to think, they do a really good job. Uh, he he and he and his circle have done a really good job, and this book does a really good job of of boiling down how people process. And if we understand where we are liable to make mental errors, uh, where we tend to misunderstand statistics, uh, where we tend to be overconfident, 
uh, all sorts of different things, basic natural illusions, both, uh, you know, in terms of the senses and in terms of, of thinking, uh, all of that stuff is really valuable for decision-making, for understanding, uh, how to better live life. And so I think that this is a, this, and, and to run a business and all these other things. And I think this is one of those, one of those books that does a really good job of, of providing a lot of warnings to say, you know, you, you have these tendencies. We all have these tendencies and we should be aware of them. And, and I think that's really, that's really useful. Yeah. And to go into a quick overview uh, for, for anyone who, ha who hasn't read the book, it, it's really divided into three parts where the first part talks about uh, system one versus system two, and that's uh, the fast and the slow. So system one refers to fast thinking, system two to, to the slower thinking. Yeah. And more specifically, um, system one being what we would t tend to call intuition, mm -hmm. intuitive thinking, the, the sort of thinking without thinking. Uh, the natural judgments that we all make without ever having to process that those judgments are happening. Uh, and, so and that's, also, that's system one. And also unconscious yeah. versus conscious in, in a yeah. way. And, 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 and I'm, I'm really glad he didn't use those terms and that he didn't use terms that most people use to discuss these things because talking about it as system one and system two actually just kind of helped you th think about it in, in a new way and not not go to everything that you've read or learned about unconscious versus conscious before. It kind of removed the baggage of that and just helped it, in, in my mind at least, helped, helped it to, uh, to, to kind of be fresh. Yeah, it's not just fresh. It also, it also makes it pretty neutral in terms of, uh, yeah. of value. It's value neutral. So it's not a matter of like, oh, you know, unconscious thinking, you know, there may be a little bit of a negative valence to that versus, you know, conscious thinking. No, he, 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 these are, the, this is just the way things tend to work, the way people tend to operate. And, uh, I think that's useful as well. I, I, I actually liked that, even though he got some criticism for that. I think, I think it was the right decision. Yeah. Um, section two goes into, uh, a kind of a humorous part of econs versus humans <laughs> and econs being uh, what anyone who's taken econ 101 the uh, the rational the rational person how they uh, they, be they behave rationally in every circumstance so he compares uh, a rational person which which doesn't exist to to humans um, and you know if you look at the back of this book it says, psychology and economics and he he won he won the uh nobel prize for economics and then the economist in 2015 listed him as the seventh most influential economist in the world so it's it's really it's it's a deeply deeply psychology related book but it's it's like the 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 economics are, are what really hit home too. And he, he really takes on the field of economics, a, a lot of the base assumptions and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, they're, they're discussed in, in other places, but I, I was surprised at the level uh, that, that it went to in this book. So that we'll, we'll discuss that more. That was section two, section three then goes into our, how we remember the past and, and, and two, two versions again of, of our remembering self versus our experiencing self. So those are the three divisions of the book. And, and then he has a nice little tidy uh, tie up at the end where, where he discusses these, these again, but, but uh, that's, that's how the book is, is uh, divided up. And actually, while you were, while you were talking about that, one of the things that actually came to mind, and, and there's going to be a number of places in this podcast where I'm going to, I'm going to, 
want to uh, connect uh, Kahneman's case or Kahneman's per- perspective uh, into into a dialogue with uh, Nassim Taleb uh, and and his his work. Obviously, in the book itself, Kahneman actually mentions Taleb's work on on statistics and so on, and, and has a lot of respect for how he uh, handles. Uh, randomness and all of this, you know, that fooled by randomness is what he's mostly interacting with. But actually there's uh, uh, Taleb's latest work in some ways actually pushes against some of the things that behavioral economics and, uh, and, and Kahneman and the, and, and that, that school of thought uh, push. So for example, one of the things that, that you mentioned is rationality and, you know, homo economicus is uh, that, that, that uh, what he calls econs uh, that, that, fictional individual is that people are not actually rational, you know, that they're not all, they're not, they're rarely rational is kind of the case of, of a lot of behavior, uh, behavioral um, economists now uh, and psychologists as well, that people are not rational. And there's a lot of discussion in this book about how people are not making rational decisions that, well, you know, if you evaluate this decision versus this decision, then clearly it's irrational, et cetera. Uh, Talib actually in uh, Anti-Fragile and in um, Skin in the Game, which is his latest bit, uh, in Skin in the Game in particular, he has some discussion of uh, and some critique of of the concept of rationality. And there's some discussion of this actually, and we'll we'll link link to it in a recent econ talk with uh, with Russ Roberts, where uh, he says... He, he, he notes, he says, you know, I, I thought about what he, I'm, I'm quoting Talib now. I thought about what he was saying and how people define rationality. And, and that went back to how people express what they call rational. And I noticed that, uh, and I noticed that, uh, that that is usually ex ante, uh, hence non-empirical definition of rationality. Ex ante means that I define an action as being irrational. You know, it means that you know everything that is going to go on around that action. In other words, that your model represents the world. And we've known ever since Herbert Simon uh, that uh, uh, his other rationality that effectively that you will never be able to build a model that can understand the world. So when I say an action is irrational ex ante uh, uh, beforehand, I'd better have a track record of that action because we need to see if it's maybe because there are some things that uh, there are things that are not included in that model. So if I say that it's irrational to prefer A to B or B to C, but not C to A, I'd better have a good model that holds in the real world. That's called the transitivity con- uh, condition. And I've a- argued in Antifragile, he says, that if you expand the model to saying that, it, that for an individual, it may make sense to be coherent, but collectively, we cannot, uh, collectively, we cannot operate what's coherent uh, individually because you deplete resources. For example, if you always prefer tuna to steaks, you would deplete the tuna supply. So you need to cycle. So he basically says nature makes you randomly change preferences and that's not irrational, even though changing preferences is often by behaviorists or by the behavioral school behaviorists. I'm sorry, is a different, a totally different thing, but by the behavioral school of uh, economics is regarded as irrational. And and Talib is actually saying, well, maybe there's something deeper in here that's missed by uh, a more fossil surface level understanding of rationality. So it, it, I, I actually think Talib's latest work and there are a few other things are a nice counterbalance to what I think is very valuable work here from Kahneman. So I think that's worth pairing, pairing together with, with this and, and we should put that up front. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We'll definitely link to those, those things. 
Um, and, and his skin in the game book is, is getting quite a bit of, of, uh, of play out there. Well, he's brilliant. So yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so Kahneman real quick, born in 1934 in mandatory Palestine in Tel Aviv, uh, before, before the, the state of Israel, uh, and was in Paris during world war two. He is Jewish. And so that was problematic. Uh, they, they did get out of there um, and ended up being in, in Israel um, in, in uh, 1948 at the creation of, this, of the uh, state of Israel. Um, he teaches at Prin- uh, Princeton. He's emeritus now, so he's not, not teaching anymore. Oh, okay. But, but yeah. Okay. Uh, but closely associated with that. Went to uh, Berkeley in the late 80s, early 90s. And, um, and you mentioned his, uh, his partner in crime. Uh, Amos Tversky, who unfortunately passed away, but uh, he he is discussed a lot in this book, and the two of them um, worked worked together for many years and and did some some great work together. Uh, so th- this this is one of the books for 2018 that both Jason and I read, and so we're going to discuss discuss it in that way, and in, in uh, instead of uh, one of us interviewing the other about it. So uh, we'll start out like we, we have in the past with uh, our initial reactions. And so Jason, what, uh, what was your initial reaction of, of the book? Well, I mean, I, I, this is one of the books that I, I have the most positive initial reaction to in terms of, of, of some of the ones that we've read. Uh, certainly one of the, one of the better ones, I think um, it is a little bit mixed in that. First of all, I mean, the book is, is pretty long, so I mean, whoever's gonna whoever's gonna read it, you're gonna have to commit to taking to taking some time to read this. Uh, well, I think long, it's worth long, it. long and dense. Yeah, it's well. I mean, I, well, I guess from my perspective, it's not as no, dense yeah, not, as yeah, 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 given no. stuff that I'm normally reading. But <laughs> but yeah, um, compared to the other books of Titans books. Yeah, compared to the other books of Titans books, it's maybe a little dense, uh, and it's certainly long. Um, but again, I I think this is one of those books that that is valuable for anybody to read. It's one of those books that I think would be very valuable as mandatory reading for high school students um, Mm -hmm. because it's it's the kind of thing that we need to understand where our psychological weaknesses are, where our blind spots are. And this book does a really good job of exposing those. Uh, And a lot of the a lot of the work that that you have to do in the social sciences when you're dealing with undergraduates and even graduate students is you are, you're trying so, so hard to try to get people to understand basic cognitive fallacies, basic cognitive biases, uh, logical fallacies and, and, and cognitive biases to, uh, to understand how to do better research, to understand how to think more uh, precisely. And this is the kind of book that does a really good job of that. Now on some details, you know, I, I'm always, I, I can always find places to critique things in, in terms of details. Uh, and actually on a lot of the examples that he uses and so on, they fell very flat with me. Like he would have a, uh, you know, a test case, you know, wording of uh, what do you think when you see this or a diagram, you know, which line is longer or whatever. And generally speaking, I, I, I would look at those or I would hear the, or read the, uh, the, the test case and, not fall for <laughs> what you know the, the the result of oh you probably thought this generally just didn't work for me uh, there were a few cases where it did but, but but the majority I would say didn't so in that regard it I'm part part of it is probably because I'm I've, I've spent so much time training my system one 
as he would mm-hmm. talk about it, to be careful and training my system too to be constantly alert. And that's one of the things that I think is valuable in this book is he he talks a lot about how system two, the the more careful, the slower um, pr- way of thinking, uh, you know, thinking statistically, thinking uh, uh, intentionally uh, about about things that tends to be a, a fairly lazy in most people. Most people go through life operating on system one as often as possible because it takes effort to engage system two. And actually that, that, that helped give me some language for why I'm so constantly frustrated with, with so many people is because I, I actually, and I've talked to my wife about this before that I get frustrated that I feel like there's only so many people who I regard as awake. And I don't mm-hmm. mean, mean this in like the political sense of woke. I mean, like, you talk to this person or you watch this person go through through life and this person is actually awake and is like thinking and making decisions with eyes wide open as opposed to just going through life automatically, which I, I get frustrated when people do that. And it's like, wait a second, this language of system one, most people do go through life system one and I get frustrated with those people yeah. because my system two is almost always on. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I think that, and I'm somewhat biased. I mean, as I... <laughs> As I said to Carrie the other day, uh, my wife, I was like, you know, we all tend to think this way that, you know, oh, it's so great that there's so much diversity in the world and, and, and that there's so many different types of people in the world. But man, it would be so much better if everybody were just like us, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just sort of summarizing the humorous way that we all think. Yeah. Um, and to some degree, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm as bad as anybody else with that idea that, you know, dang it, everybody else should have their system two going all, at all times as well, d- despite how exhausted that apparently leaves most people. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, th- those are my preliminary thoughts, though. I, I, I found it very useful. Uh, I think the language that he uses is very helpful. I think most of the, uh, the um, examples are, are, are illustrative and useful even though they maybe didn't always work on, on me as a reader. Uh, I think they, uh, I think, I think this is, this is one of those books that uh, I'd probably put in the top five or so that we've read so far that we've profiled so far in terms of what I'd recommend people read. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love the book. Um, It was one of my favorites so far. And and in fact, I would put it at number two overall, uh, including the books from last year. Uh, So it's one of those books I, I, I say we, we've we've read some books that are important and other books that are are fun and enjoyable, uh, but rarely do the two meet. Yeah, this one's kind of both. This one's both. Like it's a, it's a joy to read. It's fun to read. And and for me, I, I almost fell for every single one of those uh, <laughs> things in the book. You know, dang it, and, turn and on your system. I two. know I need to turn turn on system two. And and actually, the re- review I put up on the website, um, I started out with with talking about my my wife, um, with, when she confronts me about things, because I I think most of the time when I'm, when I'm doing stuff around the house, I'm, I'm just in, I first I'm in, I'm in la la land because I'm either, I'm listening to podcasts if I'm doing chores or something or, or I'm just not, I'm not even thinking about the task at hand. I'm just doing system one. And, and she, she's, you know, she's, she's probably coming at it more from the, from system two where she's thinking through like, well, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do it this way? That it makes more sense to do it this way. And, and, well, and what's honestly, funny about just, that is out of our, out of the family, you know, out of my family, mm-hmm. uh, of, of which obviously she's my sister. She's probably the most system one of our family. Yeah. Like yeah. my dad and I are very much like system two is always on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Stephanie a little bit less. So, 
Yeah. And then and she's still getting after you for that. Yeah. Yeah. But we're a very so, system. We were very, we were very raised to be very system to a very system to family. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I, I think is a great thing. Um, so yeah, in a lot of the examples in the book, I, I loved it because I would read the example and I'd be like, yeah. And then, and then he would describe exactly what's going on in my mind. <laughs> and whereas you, you know, you, you, you knew, you you didn't fall for that. I, I would fall I'd probably ninety percent of the time. Well, it's I, like I, the baseball thing, right? You know, there's the there's the yeah. uh, the the one with the there's a, an illustration. We should probably pull that up because it tends to be so influential. And I remember seeing this problem before, and that's the only reason I didn't fall for for this one. I remember seeing this on a test, like in in uh, elementary school or, or middle school or something. But okay, here it is. So uh, <laughs> here's a simple puzzle. Do not try to solve it, but listen to your intuition. A bat and ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And then he follows that up. A number came to your mind. That number, of course, is 10, 10 cents. Of course, the number that came to my mind was five. <laughs> bat and ball, the bat costs $1 more than the ball. Okay, well, it can't be $1.10. So it's got to be a dollar five. It, it's got to be it's got to be a a dollar five because five. Okay, that works. So I mean, it just uh, automatically, right? I guess. Yeah, I guess most people. For me, I'm thinking ten. <laughs> so, but but I think that's a great problem that that highlights the the difference between system one and system two because system one's looking for the easy answer, and so you you hear a ten, you hear a dollar ten. Oh, it's a dollar difference, and okay, it's a dollar and ten cents. Okay, there's. There's a difference, but it doesn't equal a dollar ten. So yeah, there's then there's the you know the the famous uh, uh, diagram uh, of the lines in there mm-hmm. with uh, with with the fins and it, the name of that is escaping me. Again, for me, I look at that and I and the first thing is if somebody tells me look at the tell me which line is longer, I immediately block out the fins. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, there there you go. Okay. So. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, I, I, if I look for it, I can see the illusion, but it's like, well, you should be ignoring the fins though. But what, what's interesting too, though, is, <laughs> is, uh, when he, he, he puts in a, a multiplication problem where it's, it's two, two digit numbers. And I know some people can probably do that in their head quickly, but, uh, most people, you, you have to stop and think about it. So his point, I certainly is that you're, do. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to, you have to ignite system two to solve that. Whereas, you know, one plus one, you, you, that's system one. You could do that easily three times three. You can do that easily, but, uh, uh, two, two digit numbers. And when you, when you, uh, initiate system two to, to take on that multiplication problem, your pupils dilate. Yes. Yeah. When, when you actually, when you're, when you're in heavy focus, uh, for anything. Yeah. Your pupils dilate. And actually it's, it's, if anybody has a cat, when you, you can see this, whenever cats really focus on something, you see their pupils dilate like really obviously we yeah. do the same thing. It's just our pupils don't dilate as wide as theirs, So it's not as obvious, but it actually does happen. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And yeah. I found that real, that chapter really interesting. Yeah. But it's, it's like one of those things where it's, 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 it's out of your control. You know, I mean, you, you can't, if you, if you start thinking, if you ignite system two, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna cause other things to go on in your body that you that you don't control that your pupils dilating. So, so yeah, that, that was really, uh, and, and, well, and, and the other thing is when you're, when you're in that state of focus, one of the, this is one thing that absolutely works on me is 
you is that you can block out all sorts of other things that you don't mm-hmm. even that you don't realize you didn't see. And of course, the the famous example of that they they he mentions this the invisible gorilla mm-hmm. uh, with 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 the the movie there, um, where you know you're counting the the uh, the um, uh, the number of basketball players or the number of basketball passes of a basketball by a team. And, you know, you have have this whole thing going on. I'm not going to we'll, we'll put a link to the video in the uh, in the show notes, but I won't I won't say anything more uh, the, about that because I want you to want the listener to be able to experience it if you haven't. But if you have, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that video absolutely worked on me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did this some years ago and it was one of those sorts like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And it, but knowing me, it's not that surprising. If I get focused, yeah, it's it's absolutely tunnel vision. You know, uh, again, my wife has has laughed that uh, she'll ask me a question, and I'll go you know ten minutes, twelve minutes, just working, and as though I didn't hear a thing, and then ten minutes later, turn and answer her as though she just asked the question <laughs> like five seconds ago, and she's like, "What do you?" But, but but because I was wor- I I was I was focused and then all of a sudden as soon as my focus breaks something happened and oh oh yeah you asked about <laughs> so you know focus and and again that understanding that we that that's a particular state of 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 consciousness or a particular state of cognition that comes with certain limitations is is useful to understand and knowing what those limitations are going to be is useful. Mm-hmm. So what, and, and uh, one thing I really liked about this book is that uh, that basketball video came up in at least one, I think more than one book last year of, of last year's books of Titans, but it was never described as well as it was in this book. And I, I think the system one system two really helped oh, yeah. him, him explain it better. Uh, but that's, I mean, I, I was starting last year to get sick of, of hearing the same examples over and over in the same books, but this book was unique in that he, he, he did some of those same examples, the same stories, but it was like he had a fresh take on it, which was, which was really unique. So, um, again, another, another reason why this book really stands out. It was just flat out written better in some of those cases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, our, our next, our next section is usually our favorite quotes of the book. And, and this time we're going to do favorite quotes, but we're also going to do things that stood out to us, uh, interesting points or, or good advice, things, things that aren't as much of a discussion point. And then we'll, after that, we'll get into more than the nitty gritty. Um, but uh, let's start off with Jason, with, with one of your favorite quotes. This one's going to come out come from the end. Um, and uh, this uh, from toward the end of the book, the last chapter, uh, he talks about the focusing illusion. So uh, this, I, and, and this is specifically connected with uh, ratings of personal happiness and all this. But the focusing illusion, he says, can be described in a single sentence. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is when you are thinking about it. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I, I love that quote because we're one. all like that. Yeah. And, and this is one of those things that, you know, I t- I'm always trying to explain to people that one of the most liberating things to realize in life is that everybody else is as self-absorbed and concerned with themselves as you are. And so once you realize that and you don't have to actually think that other people are constantly judging you or looking at you because they're really actually worried about you looking at them and judging them, that 
once you realize that you're free to live, you're free to do whatever, because, you know, you know even if they are judging you and looking at you, eventually, eventually it still comes back to how it affects them. And it's, they're really, people just really aren't as concerned about you as you are concerned about yeah. you. <laughs> and this is, this, this takes that a step further to everything, whatever your attention is on at the moment is, is less important than what you think it is at that moment. Yeah. That, that's, I, I, I love that quote. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I just have one quote and then, uh, and then some, some good advice and, and things that I think are, would be helpful to, to listeners. Um, if, if you haven't read the book or if you have just a, as reminders, so I'll do my one quote and then, uh, and then go into those other things, uh, interspersed with, with Jason's quotes. So my quote, uh, because adherence to standard operating procedures is difficult to second guess decision makers who expect to have their decisions scrutinized with hindsight are driven to bureaucratic solutions and extreme, extreme reluctance to take risks. Yeah, that that's a really good one. We're going to need to develop that a little bit, but yeah, that actually I found that entire section of the book for anybody who has anything, any, any managerial responsibility or particularly executive responsibility that, that section of the book having to do with uh, hindsight bias and, and how that impacts decision-making and risk-taking, I thought was, was brilliant and thought it was really we, uh, well done and usefully put, uh, mm-hmm. particularly some of the, the uh, action items that he gives for handling some of the natural biases that people have uh, cognitively and, 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 and limitations that people have uh, and that organizations tend to have. I found that really useful, but you'll probably get to that in a moment. Yeah. I, uh, I mean- Yeah. So go ahead. No, go ahead with your next one. Okay. So my next one, uh, is again, from toward the end, uh, it is, uh, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that happiness is the experience of spending time with people you love and who love you. It's not actually all that connected with a lot of the rest of the book, but (laughs) again, it's, it's very true. Yeah. All right. My first uh, interesting point here is that frowning increases the vigilance of system two thinking. So he would talk about if you put a pen in your mouth with the end, like uh, the cap in your mouth straight ahead and you frown, it actually, it actually ignites, helps ignite system two. Whereas if you put the pen, the pen or pencil in your mouth, the other way. So it's kind of aligned with your smile. It has to do with your teeth. Yeah. It has to do with whether it's in your teeth, whether you're, whether you have your lips on it and you're frowning or whether it's in your teeth without smile or without, without, uh, without your lips touching, which forces you into kind of smile. Yeah. The, again, just kind of like the pupils dilating, just a really fascinating. Yeah. The physiological connections between processing mentally and the body. Yeah. That's yeah. That's interesting stuff. It's crazy. So go ahead, go ahead with your, your next one. Okay. Amos, uh, obviously Amos Tversky, Amos Tversky and I often joked that we were engaged in studying a subject about which our grandmothers knew a great deal. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yep. Grandpa and grandma's wisdom. Yep. And actually that's connected to a larger quote, which is worth worthwhile. The the concept of loss aversion is certainly the most significant contribution of psychology to behavioral economics. This is odd because the idea that people evaluate many outcomes as gains and losses and that losses loom larger than gains surprises no one. Amos and I joked that we were engaged in studying a subject about which our grandmothers knew a great deal. Hmm. And 
that connects with something that uh, a colleague of mine uh, who did her PhD with me a few years ago, uh, we were in the, we were in the same cohort. Uh, she once said, and I think she's right about this, uh, that there's really two types of research, two types of good research, uh, in, in, in particularly in our type of field or in social sciences, so, uh, that sort of thing. But basically two, two good types of research. One is the kind that makes you go, huh? Interesting. Right. So you've got that. And the other is the one that makes you slap your forehead and go, <laughs> duh. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and those are the, those are the two types of good research that are out that, that you can do. One is the, huh. And the other is the, duh. Oh, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's that. And, and actually I think that there's a third type that's both. That's the oh, head slap, <laughs> duh. And then, huh following the duh but but I, I you know this a lot of what Kahneman and Tversky did with with some of their their most influential work which is covered in this book was absolutely the head slap variety which is like oh that's just the most obvious thing in the world it's not counterintuitive at all it's the most obvious thing in the world but it goes against all sorts of economic or or probability theory or whatever you know the theoretical stuff that was that was governing things when they when they when they came out with it and it's like no actually that, that just doesn't work well and to take a tangent of 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 what you're talking about one one thing that was really neat about this book was to see the two of them come up with the tests and the the research to to do to to have people do to to learn about these things I mean, because you, you have to think long and hard of how do we best create a situation for people to, to come up with these decisions? What are the questions we use? All that. Um, and, and they they kept doing it over and over. And, and to see what kind of things they did for that was was really fascinating. <laughs> but uh, all right. My second one is is uh, is going to fall, fall under good advice. So he says before you discuss a contentious issue in a meeting, have everyone write down what they think first. Because what, what oftentimes happens in a meeting is maybe the senior person will give their, their view and then everyone will kind of go towards that because they don't, you don't want to, you don't want to make the boss mad. Um, or people will for, forget their original thought uh, after hearing a number of other people speak and so he, he, he suggested having everyone write it down and then either pass it up to the front uh, or, or keep it by you. But, but the point is, then you discuss it. And, and then after that, you can, you can bring up the, the original idea so that none of those is lost through just somebody not getting to speak or being, uh, being discussed over by, by other people in the meeting. It's interesting. Was just a brilliant it, well, it's brilliant, do. but it also connects to the advice of two other books that we that we discussed last year, right? It, uh, the effective executive mm -hmm. uh, that talks some about the necessity of getting people to write out their ideas and and uh, the importance of um, of making sure that that one person doesn't dominate a meeting like that. So that that's already in there in, in that sense. But this yeah. this adds adds to it, uh, and also. Uh, uh, what's his name? The, uh, I, I Iacocca, right? yeah, Iacocca yeah. emphasized, uh, exactly that too of, of no force your assistants, force your people to write out what they, what they think. 
and on then one piece of paper on one piece of paper and then have the discussion with them because then they'll have something to say they'll have they'll have an established position and you'll get better stuff yeah absolutely right so you know this is this is one of those things, recur, recurring themes like this that come up in books of Titans or in multiple books of Titans books, this is the kind of kernel of wisdom that uh, that you probably ought to put into practice in your everyday life, listeners. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that we're, we're, we're trying to uh, Im- implement in our own in that regard as well. This definitely has shown up more than once. And I think, I, again, I agree with it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you have a quote? Yeah. Um, so this one, actually, I'm going to be using this quote in the book that I'm in presently editing. Uh, I decided to, to pull this quote and, and I'm using it in one of my chapters, it looks like. So uh, I like it that much. Nice. <laughs> uh, I'll use actually part of it. But uh, he's referring to Bernoulli's theory. This is in uh, uh, chapter 26, uh, where he's talking about their introduction of, process, uh, of prospect theory. Uh, he says Bernoulli's theory... Uh, he says the, the longevity of the theory, which had been around for about 250 years, the longevity of the theory is all the more remarkable because it is seriously flawed. The <laughs> errors of a theory are rarely found in what it asserts explicitly. They hide in what it ignores or tacitly assumes. Mm-hmm. That last piece is so true. And so much of the work that I've done, I've been saying exactly that sort of thing, but this says it so perfectly well. I'm going to use this quote, but it is... This idea that 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 theories get put in place and the flaws of the theory are often hidden in precisely what the theory takes for granted. Mm-hmm. And it's only once you actually reevaluate the foundations of the theory that you recognize, wait, there's serious limitations here. There's serious flaws. And he says elsewhere, it's a striking example of theory induced blindness that this obvious flaw in Bernoulli's theory failed to attract scholarly notice for more than 250 years. And the, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to address in, in the book that I'm working on now, which is based on my dissertation is actually addressing a very similar situation where there's some, some theoretical stuff that I'm, I'm addressing where that has been dominant in scholarship has been a dominant perspective in scholarship for hundreds of years. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, how did no one notice this? Yeah. How, 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 how has no one, I mean, this is actually really obvious. And, and it's the, taken for granted by everyone. And it's been taken for granted for, by everyone for centuries. And, uh, and, and now what's funny is that other people who've read my initial article on the, on the, you know, planting the flag on what I'm doing in the, in this book and some other things, other people who've come across it have had the same reaction on, oh my gosh, like, how how first of all how has no one seen this before and secondly what how 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 did you how did you notice it right and it's one of those like but this was obvious and so um that my next quote will be connected to that but i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it over to you for for the next uh insight and then i'll, I'll connect to uh his his statement on this which is exactly how i i tend to think about it as well so all right this one goes out to the uh, the married men out there who are <laughs> investors. Women achieve better investment results than men. So men, turn your investments over to your wives. <laughs> now, there, there was a really good chapter about that. Um, 
And it, a lot of it has to do with, I mean, if you, if you buy into the market and you stay there and, and you're in a, uh, you're, you're in a, um, a fund, you know, it's not just a, a individual stock. If you stick with that and, and don't sell and don't try to time the market, you, you end up doing a lot better. And, and women have that, uh, generally, you know, general, generally here have that patience and, and, and have a better mind for that than, than men who, who want to jump out of the market, get back in. And the more you do that, the more you're, you're spending in, in fees to do that. And, uh, you actually are not that, that good at timing the market. So women achieve better investment results than men on the aggregate. Yes. On the aggregate. Yes. And actually that's an important thing throughout this book is that this book is consistently as with most research of this type dealing with the aggregate. Yeah. So there are exceptions to all sorts of these, these things, but again, understanding the aggregate is really important because most of us fall in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also worth noting, by the way, that, uh, that the response of a lot of the people who fall, follow, fall more in line of the rational model of economics observe that the, uh, and, and he acknowledges, actually, you can see that he's been a part of this discussion for quite a long time. Uh, and, and I think he represents his, uh, his interlocutors in this regard fairly, but he observes that Actually, the reason that 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 uh, econs this this construct of econs, which he says you know this type of person really doesn't exist, the reason that it's been so uh, persistent in economic uh, in in the field of economics is that the theories based on it work pretty well, mm-hmm. and actually the thing that that many uh, many who commit who are still committed to a more rational choice model of economics. Uh, observe that on the aggregate, so individuals may be irrational, but on the aggregate, the choices steer towards what is actually rational in that regard. And that's, that's one of the, one of the, and and I'm oversimplifying that a little bit, but basically uh, on the aggregate decisions start to push toward the, the, toward, uh, toward the rational. And so you can assume rationality, even if the the individual actors are irrational. Uh, That's, that's one of the responses of, of, of that side of things. And, and again, the, the truth is maybe a little bit closer to the middle there. Well, let's, let's discuss that for a minute. So what do economists think of, of his work? I mean, did, 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 uh, did he the, won the Nobel prize in economics in, in so. economics? Yes. Yeah. But did, did it, did it upend a lot of the theories? Did, did a lot of things change or is everything kind of still the same and they kind of look at him as, an outlier or did he really have a huge impact on economics? He's had a, a, a massive impact on economics, largely through the impact of Richard Thaler, who also uh, has won the Nobel prize. Actually, he won the, nine, the, the 2017 Nobel prize in economics uh, for his contributions there. But basically uh, the, the contributions of Kahneman and Tversky and, uh, and, and then later on Thaler, depending on a lot of their work, uh, they, that, that has basically involved, uh, the creation of an entirely new branch of economics. So it's not, not a matter of it being an outlier. It's actually a new, like theoretical branch that other aspects of economics have to take into account. And, and there's been a lot of, uh, impact of behavioral economics on governmental policy on mm-hmm. things, you know, for example, the, the concept of nudge. Uh, and and the idea of making things opt in versus opt out, and how that impacts uh, whether whether or not people uh, whether or not citizens do what is what is best for them, 
those concepts come straight out of the behavioral psych- psychological uh, or behavioral uh, economic uh, research and the, the psychological approach that, that Kahneman uh, brings. And that stuff's had some significant impact on governmental decisions uh, worldwide, particularly in the UK, some in the US and then also Scandinavia. There's been some major, uh, major developments uh, applying that. So, so yeah, yeah there's I mean, been, there's oh, been a pretty oh. big impact. Uh, President Obama really took to to him, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Richard Thaler definitely uh, definitely had some big impact on that. On, on Obama yeah, yeah. Actually, and, uh, I'd like to read. Uh, I, I added nudge to my potential list for next year. I, th- I think that would be a good one to, uh, interesting one to read. Yeah, and it's and it's based on a lot of the same stuff as this one, so there will be some overlap. Yeah, yeah. All right, your turn for a quote. All right, so this is the second part of second part. Uh, of of what I was just uh, just talking about, and it's when he was talking about uh, when he first stumbled across across what became prospect theory, which was really his biggest contribution, and it's what led to the Nobel Prize for him. Uh, he said, "Amos and I stumbled upon the central uh, stumbled on the central flaw of Bernoulli's theory by a lucky combination of skill and ignorance." <laughs> <laughs> and then he said uh, he'd been working on on on. Uh, looking at uh, some of these principles. And he said, I did not know enough about utility theory to be blinded by respect for it. And I was puzzled. And then further, he further on later on, he says knowledge of perception and ignorance about decision theory, both contributed to a large step forward in our research. <laughs> and, um, and actually that's that, that, that I think gets back to another concept that we've talked about before. And that's the think like a child concept mm-hmm. uh, that, that that has come up in more than one books of Titans book uh, that if you want to take quantum leaps forward in research or in business or whatever, take a step back and, and say, wait a second, what, what, what are the assumptions that everybody has? What are the assumptions that I have now that if I were a complete novice, if I knew nothing about this, that I wouldn't have? And let mm-hmm. me re-examine this from that angle. And it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And he talks about the cognitive problems, the cognitive difficulties of doing that. Once you change your mind, once you embrace a theory, it's hard to go back to the state before you knew it. But you know, I've I've said in the past one of the strengths of my um of of why I've done good research in my area is that I'm just ignorant and stupid enough to to keep things simple. Mm-hmm. To assume that there's certain simple response, certain simple things, and so I don't, I, I end up not having, not getting swayed by some of the more complex theories that everybody else is depending on, and oftentimes I've willfully ignored them, uh, you know, tried not to learn them and tried to evaluate things before I ever learned them, and then that leads to better, better results. And this, this is this is what happened with him there, embracing one's ignorance and and applying what you know to a new area having new eyes for a new area can really be useful. Well, I, I think it has a lot to do with pride too. And I, I, I always remember my first year working at Russell uh, corporation and I was in a meeting and, and one of the top executives came into the meeting and asked questions that I would have been embarrassed to ask <laughs> and no one else in the room would have, would have asked, but they were really important questions and no one, no one was discussing them for fear out of, hurt pride that they, that they would look stupid asking these questions, but there were, there was a lot of power in, in him asking those questions because it brought a lot of assumptions up that uh, maybe people weren't, weren't thinking about. So I think in line with that, a, a lot of people probably avoid the type of thinking you're, you're discussing 
because of fear of, of looking dumb too. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I think that's generally right. And, and again, it's the, you, you get blinded by respect for a theory because you assume that whoever came up with that theory, I mean, if everybody's been operating according to this theory for 250 years, obviously it, they know more than I do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe they, they probably did, but let's take another look at it. Let's just evaluate it. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm just too thick in the head to quite get why I don't understand why this works. But if I, if I'm noticing that something doesn't quite add up, that's where, you know, you do follow your intuition sometimes. That's where mm-hmm. system one is starting to get that. And we have to be careful not to let the let the the pride of wanting to make sure that, you know, you don't get seen as the one who doesn't really get the theory. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't get it because it's wrong. <laughs> I don't get it because it doesn't explain this. I, I like I've tried this like 20 times and it doesn't work. That that's that's a that's a good path forward. Yeah. All right. Your next one. All right. My next um my next piece of, of good advice, if you're in a negotiation and the first number that the other person throws out is outrageous, leave. <laughs> because if that number is on the table, whether you think it is or not, it is in your head and it's on the table. So if it, if it is completely out of the realm of, of where you even want to be near negotiating, it's better to leave and and either have them come back at you with, with he uh, says to actually make a scene. Yeah. <laughs> Which I could see you doing. Cause I, I know you've have good I've done stories it before. Of, of car buying and, and, um, and that type of thing. So, uh, but, but just another really good piece of advice, you know, if, if, if it's outrageous, don't, don't try to negotiate your way to uh, what you want. It's better just to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one from me, uh, this is actually him quoting, uh, uh, Herbert, uh, Simon on intuition. Uh, he says, intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognition. Yeah. Love it. I I had that one written down. Love it. That's good. And, and and the thing is, what that means is if you want to train intuition, you have to train intuition through the process of a ton of repetition and a ton of exposure to cause and effect. Mm -hmm. If you want to develop expertise and there's a lot in this this book about how to develop expertise and it plugs in nicely with the work of Anders Ericsson and you know, the, the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice and all this stuff. If you want to develop expertise, you need to be in, you need to put yourself in a position where you have tons of reps and you get to see the outcomes of each repetition and learn from that. And over time, you internalize that. And then yeah. that, that, that recollection becomes intuition. And that, I, I think, is a really valuable way to think about it. And it's a, a good way to think about education and a good way to think about you know, training children is that's what it's about. It's about repeating each rep, each, each little lesson enough times that it gets internalized so that the intuition gets built and it's now automatic. Yeah. And we saw that in uh, Josh Waitzkin's book. Yep. The Art of Learning, where he, he, he talked about the, and he talked about it more in the uh, unconscious versus, versus conscious, but where with the conscious, you're, you're building habits within the conscious mind that the more you do them, it, it gets transferred to the unconscious mind. And then, and then it's, uh, it's part, part there. So my, my next one is another piece of uh, good advice. 
and this, this goes in line, Jason, with what you were talking about earlier. To teach, you must surprise. Kind of that, ah, yeah, or duh. But I, I, I think back to, to the teachers that had the most impact on me. And I, I mean, I, I can still remember the class. I can remember where I was sitting in the class. And I remember being shocked by what they said. You know, you, you have a, a number of teachers that drone on, and it could be about important things, but it's, it's almost like a joke. It's almost like the Steve Martin book we read, where the things that stick out to you are when something takes an unexpected twist. And for the teacher that can, that can surprise you with, with what they're teaching you, you are more apt to remember that than, uh, than just somebody mindlessly droning on about, uh, about, about a topic. Yeah. So I thought even, even for, as people are thinking about that in terms of, of how can I get somebody to remember this, try, try to, try to present it in a way that surprises them. Yep. Yep. Find And find, find, uh, uh, ways of, of forcing people to have an answer and then be corrected by what they, what they learn. And that, yeah. that, that's that much more valuable. Yeah. Um, all right. So the next one from me, the premise of this book is that it is easier to recognize other people's mistakes than our own. That's a pretty strong premise. Yeah. Uh, in my experience for, for sure. Uh, it's also it also comes at the end of something that was kind of comical to me for the rest for for some, for reasons that might be different from a lot of other people and that I'm, I'm somewhat abnormal here. Uh, he says, as a way to live your life, however, continuous vigilance is not necessarily good, and it is certainly impractical. Constantly questioning our own thinking would be impossibly tedious. And system two is much too slow and inefficient to serve as a substitute for system one in making routine decisions. Well, <laughs> spend some time with me and my wife and you'll discover <laughs> that, yeah, actually, we actually are, in many cases, good examples of system two is much too slow and inefficient to serve as a substitute for system one. Not so much in that we default to system one. It's that it took us like nine months to, to buy a, the proper sized uh, comforter for our bed. <laughs> after we got married because i had one that was a full size and we had a queen size bed that we were sharing the, the you know that i'd gotten we'd gotten the queen size bed when we got married we were sharing the the old uh comforter from when i was sleeping on a full size before we got married and obviously that was not the best situation because the covers weren't enough for to cover both of us most of the time well it is if you want to be close right well yeah but it was it was an unstable situation it did not lead to the best <laughs> outcomes but we were we wanted to make the best choice on what what we what kind of comforter we got for our bed we you know that's a commitment we're going to have this for for some years and we don't want to you know get one that's not the right value for what we're going to get we don't want to spend too much on one so we it took us not, like i think it was 9 months to actually buy yeah. one and then finally we got you fed guys, up and went and bought one and it was you like you guys can discuss ad nauseum yeah it's like wow this is great. We have one that like we slept so much better and, and you know, it's um, sometimes that overvigilance is definitely a, a downside, but he says the best we can do is compromise, learn to recognize situations in which mistakes are likely and try harder to avoid significant mistakes when the stakes are high. And so my, the, where I'm having to learn to compromise is to default to system one in some cases and go, just, just 
just buy the thing or just do you know what seems best on the first on the first guess more often whereas for for lots of other people the tendency may, may need to go in the other direction but that learning to compromise is something that this uh, between the systems is something that this book spends a large amount of time on and and, and again it's a very valuable lesson yeah and uh, that's something that really stuck out stuck out to me in the book too and 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 kind of going into it a little bit more we can easily spot other people's problems because <laughs> most of us are, are thinking about other people in, in system two, whereas we, we really operate ourselves more from, from system one. So it's really hard for us to, to understand where we're falling short or hurting others or doing things incorrectly, but uh, other people can easily uh, see that. So one, one note I, I made is, is I, I really need to be, to be, listening to my wife more because if anyone is going to know going to know me it's going to be her <laughs> with me all the time uh and 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 able to see me in in a way that i'm not able to to see myself so yeah i i, I liked that uh that point as well all right so my my next piece of good advice and this this stuck out to me as a uh as a web developer because one thing i try to do is make is to make things as easy to read and easy to find as possible. But he, he gave a, a situation where using a bad font can actually make people remember it more. That is literally the next, it. that is literally the passage that I was looking at for my next one. <laughs> Go for it. So yeah, if, if you have a bad font or, or even colors that don't mix well and someone has to kind of, you know, do their eyes a little bit to, to see it better, uh, they have to put a little more effort into it. They, they, there's, there's points where that can actually be more beneficial to you, where they will remember whatever you have written in that bad font. I'll just go ahead and build to the next two points underneath that, which are also great advice. If you care about being thought credible and intelligent, do not use complex language where simpler language will do. Mm -hmm. I always have to reinforce this with students and, and others that listen, if you can't say it simply, then First of all, you probably don't understand it well enough. And secondly, it's not going to be as effective communicating it. Find a way to say, you know, it's the old uh, 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 Mark Twain idea. Never say policeman will co when cop will do. <laughs> and um, and then he, he goes on beyond that. And he says, in addition to making your message simple, try to make it memorable. Put your ideas in verse if you can. They will be more likely to be taken as truth. Yeah. There, and, and that chapter actually is that's chapter six uh, on norms, surprises and causes the, the, the value of how to get how to get messages across and to be believed extremely important for those of us who want to be more persuasive, uh, who understand, who want to understand how how to get our points across and to use the various biases and limitations built into into the human psyche to take advantage of that to best get across what we believe to be true, to make our case more persuasively. Yeah. Yeah. And any, and, and especially anyone involved in uh, propaganda, great, great <laughs> chapter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but again, propaganda is not always wrong. Yeah. You pro use propaganda for, for good things. Yeah. For good, not for evil. Don't be evil now, Google. Uh, another uh, good advice. I thought this was interesting. He said, if you are at the doctor and the anesthesiologist says something, listen to them. 
because they are the closest to the problem or they're, they're the, they see the most immediate results. So he was contrasting that with a doctor who said, well, this may happen in six months from now to the anesthesiologist who once they put that, that needle in you and, and administer <laughs> the uh, whatever they're putting into you, if, if, if they observe that something doesn't feel right, listen to them because that immediate connection between cause and effect is powerful. And the longer that distance is, the more we as people get the, the solution or the answer wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I'm fairly fresh out of uh, favorite quotes and, and, and lessons and ready to move into some critique and other things. I don't know about if you have any more uh, life lessons here from the book. Yeah, let me do uh, two more. One, I, I wanted to see if you remembered the uh, since since uh, since I am such a lover of sugar, I wanted <laughs> to see if if the uh, glucose comment stuck yeah, out to you. I, it stuck out because uh, actually I am aware that uh, that hasn't held up in attempts to replicate. Oh, okay. So uh, th- th- this this is one. There there are a number of um. There are a few places in this book that I actually I highlighted in a different color because they uh, they are things that I'm aware in the last ten to fifteen years or in some cases the last four years five years have been challenged or overturned. Uh, okay, and this is one of those where uh, ego depletion being undone by inge- ingesting glucose uh, so that you're able to you know better make decisions you 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 re- re- regain some of your uh, re- recover from some of your decision fatigue. Uh, that I believe was one of the hundred uh, psychological studies that was attempted to be replicated in the recent, um, uh, you know, meta study that that was trying to replicate a hundred of a hundred really uh, famous studies. This one did not replicate. So okay. there's some question as to whether or not it's it's legit. So sorry for those of you who eat like hummingbirds, like Eric, <laughs> have the diet of a hummingbird. Um, that that may not actually hold up. So, okay, it may it, you know there may be something to it, but again, it, it didn't replicate the last time, as I as I recall. Yeah, and 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 if you're not familiar with it, it's basically the idea that if you become tired due to effort of will or self control, that can be overcome or undone by ingesting uh, glucose. So I I just thought it was funny because I like um oh yeah like eating sugar, yeah. and then the last one um. Uh, interesting point I thought was it's easier to fall into temptation when our system too is taxed. So if you, if you are asked to solve that multiplication problem with, uh, with, you know, big numbers, uh, temptation may be easier for you if, if, if your, uh, if your system too is taxed. So I, uh, probably a lot of variables going on there, but, um, I thought that one was, was interesting as well. Yep. Yep. That's a good one. Now let's go ahead and get to some critiques and so on. I've been kind of itching to get to a couple of these. Yeah. Uh, the first one on my list, uh, he spends some time discussing the hot hand fallacy uh, yeah. as he calls it. It's one thing uh, I really wanted to discuss. So good. So what, what, what I want to hear your thoughts on this first. Well, this was the hardest concept of the book for me. Uh, basically the, the regression to the mean. And from, from what I understand of it, of, of uh, it's basically the, the sports illustrated problem. <laughs> Whenever someone's on the cover of sports illustrated, they, uh, they tend to do a lot worse after that. So the idea is that they're peaking, they're kind of above average here. 
Um, they get highlighted on Sports Illustrated, and then they regress to the mean after that. And so that whatever whatever they did to get them on the, the cover of Sports Illustrated, they certainly didn't, didn't keep that up. Yeah, and that's connected to some degree. And actually, regression to the mean is an important important concept, and we can talk about that in a moment. But that's connected loosely to this idea of um, of the hot hand. I'll read the little little blurb about this in here, and then I'll, I'll address some more recent uh, stuff on it. So he says, um, some years later, Amos Tversky and his students Tom Gilovich and Robert Vallone caused a stir with their study of misperceptions of randomness in basketball. The fact that players occasionally acquire a hot hand is generally accepted by players, coaches, and fans. The inference is irresistible. A player sinks three or four baskets in a row, and you cannot help but form, or you cannot help forming the causal judgment that this player is now hot with a temporary in, temporarily increased propensity to score. Players on both teams ad- adapt to this judgment. Teammates are more likely to pass to the hot scorer, and the defense is more likely to double team. Analysis of thousands of sequences of shots led to its disappointing conclusion. There is no such thing as a hot hand in professional basketball, either in shooting from the field or scoring from the foul line. Of course, some players are more accurate than others, but the sequence of successes and missed shots satisfies all tests of randomness. The hot hand is entirely in the eye of the beholders, who are consistently too quick to perceive order and causality and randomness. The hot end is a or the hot hand is a massive and widespread cognitive illusion. And this this was a widely celebrated study for over twenty five years. It was done in 1985. Very important. A lot, and it was regarded as sort of the victory of of cold statistics over, you know, basically uh, conventional wisdom in sport or whatever. Or the problem is, yeah, the problem is that it has been pretty significant. I mean, pretty. Uh, I I'm I think basically completely persuasively overturned in the last four years. Okay. Um. And I'm a little bit mad because the people who did it beat me to it. Uh, Tim and I were actually looking at, at doing a study that was going to overturn this because we, when we looked at it, we were not persuaded by the way that the study, by the, uh, by the methodology of the study mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how they assessed randomness uh, and how they assessed the, uh, the, the statistical, uh, uh, the, the way that they did the stats for it. And a couple other people came in and they, one, 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 one set did basically along the lines of what we were going to do and did it probably better than we would have. So, you know, not much we can complain about, but, um, but basically now the, the, the hot hand basically is, is, has been restored to its, its, its concept that this does exist. And for a couple reasons, uh, one is, uh, there was a study that, that, uh, that used more, robust data that included where shots actually come from on the floor and and basically included the difficulty of shots based on that data and concluded that players who were hitting more shots in a row actually their next shot tended to be a little bit more difficult and they and and so there there was uh some correspondence of improve you would you expect as shots get more difficult that the that the percentages would decrease but they didn't and so basically it was like, well, you know, it does seem that they're actually, it does seem to be some improvement in that they're hitting more difficult shots. So that, that was, that was one of them. That was the less persuasive pa- uh, paper, although, and that was a 2014 paper that was, um, that was, uh, that was a, a, an important one, but the one that really, I think nailed it 
more than anything is uh it was one done by uh by joshua miller uh this was maybe two years ago uh, and what Miller did is he basically did a mathematical analysis, and and I think he, he his critique was was bigger, um, or was more foundational. And it's that you can't apply statistics the way that they did because they're applying post hoc statistics. They're taking the statistics. So if you're a forty seven percent shooter at the end of the season, and then I go back and I take a look at the full data set, I'm going to expect you to be basically a 47% shooter with various patterns that can show up in different ways in there. But of course it's going to, it's going to look like it passes the test of randomness. Cause I already know the statistical outcome at the end. What he does is he basically says, no, actually probability by its very nature has a cold hand built into the laws of probability. So if you flip a coin and you get heads, what's the likelihood that you're going to get tails next? You would, you would think it would be exactly 50%. The probability of getting tails on any flip is 50%, but if you have a finite number of coin flips or shot attempts or any other probability-based event, ultimately, the probability reverts to the mean. So if you get a heads, and you, if you have two flips, you, you get heads, you're actually... Based on the laws of probability, you're likely to get you're more likely than than not to get tails next. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he he actually addresses this and he he shows this with some very complex math to explain how this is built into the into the um into probabilities, particularly Wait, if you so have post hoc probabilities. So it's it would be probability versus mean then? mean would be fifty percent, and then probability if you already had heads would be Right, so probability was where it would be different. Right, basically, you've got a difference between probability. You've got probability while accounting for regression to the mean, okay. and the and the general under and and basically understanding that probability is not uh, probability of finite numbers works a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And the original paper didn't account for this. When he went back and he dug up the data that they had, he actually found that the that the um, that the hot hand difference went from effectively zero to about 12%. Okay. And so, and that I found very persuasive. Uh, and, and there, there are a few other issues here in terms of how actually in this section of the book, Kahneman is really adamant that no, listen, statistics just show that this is a result of luck. Like if you're a 47% shooter, you're a 47% shooter. And the, outcomes of any individual shot or any series of shots is based on plugging your 47% in with luck. And then you get, you know, your random outcomes. And that's just not the way things work. As soon as you have human causality built in, Mm -hmm. because a person is not a 47% automaton, people do get better or get worse. Like if you're fatigued, you know, I, I, in doing a workout, for example, the other day, I, I, I often will do double unders, you know, uh, jump ropes where jumping rope where you have the rope pass under your feet twice as a way to uh, as a part of my conditioning. And if I'm really fatigued or I've had a rough few workouts in a row, I find that I actually ha- I trip more on the rope than if I'm really fresh. Mm-hmm. That's not statistical. That's actually a that's actually a regression that's a that's a uh, a a uh, a reduction in my capacity 
in that skill that happens as a result of me being embodied and flawed and potentially fatigued and all that, that gets factored in. And yeah, that you, you can try to call that luck or whatever, but it's not random chance. It's not random probability. It's actually more complex than that. And some of Kahneman's discussion of, uh, of golf, of some of the some of the sporting event stuff that he does in terms of how the, he says, well, you know, the explanations are are causal, but you know, we know that they re- that it's really just a matter of of luck and numbers and probabilities. It's it's really more complicated than that. Yes, mm-hmm. luck and probabilities factor in, but you also have to account for that people are moving targets and that, you know, you, a, a golfer may not have slept well the night before. And yeah, you chalk, chalk that up to luck or not, or maybe he did sleep well, but just today he, for whatever reason, like he's not feeling it. Mm-hmm. And he talks elsewhere in the book about flow. And this, this, this is where in a couple places in this book, I found that there were some contradictory stuff and it mostly centered in this section. If you talk about flow and this ability to get into a, 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 a state of, of consciousness where you're automatically able to focus and do things better and do it with less, eff- with, with less perceived effort and all of that, which he ad- acknowledges that that is a human experience earlier in the book, and then you're going to say, well, there can't be such a thing as a hot hand. The hot hand is flow. Yeah. I've been, and, and that's the thing. The reason that players and others basically ignored this this data for 25 years, even though a lot of people said, well, you know, the, 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 the metrics are clear is if you've been there, I've been there on the basketball floor where you hit eight or nine shots in a row. And you know, like this is not a feeling like I've felt in other cases. I know that if I take this next shot, I'm hitting it. Yeah. And it takes something to break that flow. Yeah. So, well, yeah, thank you. Because that, I mean, that, that was the most difficult part of the book for me. And, and, you've got he's presenting all this data but it's like ah something something doesn't jibe here with my my experience and i think the other part that i had a real hard problem with is uh it, it, it you know what about jordan versus another guy in the league like is it just jordan's reg- jordan's mean is higher so yes. he regresses the mean it's it, 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 yeah. i understand each that, individual it, player has their own uh their own skill level, which some players skill level is higher than others, which means that that player's mean for performance or that player's median or mode of performance is higher than another player, another player who might be in the same situation. Yeah. So the Um, idea there is that Jordan might score 69 points one night, you know, against Cleveland because he would always play well against Cleveland, (laughs) but Jordan would score, you know, 69 one night or, you know, 63, against the the Celtics and then, you know, score 23 another night. And you say, well, geez, what happened? Did he get worse? No, he didn't get worse. There is some aspect of randomness in this that, you know, some of it is this that some nights that that shot that would bounce in doesn't. And then there's also the fatigue and all these other things. And that's the part that I think his, the, the numbers approach doesn't always appreciate. It can approximate, but it doesn't, I think that there are oftentimes causal explanations for what numbers only approximate later. The numbers are post hoc. What you can't do is say, okay, Jordan scored 69 last night. He's, he's, he's going to revert to the mean and his mean is say 32. So we should expect him to score 16 tomorrow night. You can't do that. 
he might score 60 the next night because he just might be feeling it that week. Yeah. But, uh, and so, you know, you can't, you can't make predictions on that basis, but at the end of all of it, you can use the statistics to evaluate how, how good he was and establish what his mean was. And you can see where he did keep regressing back to that mean, but regression to the mean to me, it's an, it's an important concept. And I talk about it a lot when I do my sports analysis, but it it's one place where I think actually in the way that he presented it in this book, regression to the mean is more often than not best treated as a as a good post hoc explanation for something rather than a predictive tool, even though it is it, it can be useful for some predictions that if you have an outlier. Yeah, you know, maybe expecting a, a reversion, a, a, a reversion to the mean is, is a good idea. But you, but it's it's not entirely predictive. It's it's a better post hoc explanation, which actually then the irony of that is that it gives it causative, it gives it a causal um, sense to it, where he's saying you know we shouldn't think about things causally. You know that doesn't have a causal effect. It's just reversion to the mean. Well, that's your causal. So it's a sub it's a substitute causal, and I think used that way sometimes it can be a little bit dangerous. So. I actually didn't think he did as good a job there. I was surprised in a couple places by his use of, of probability, which I thought was in a couple cases, a little bit unsophisticated. Um, one other example of that was where I, I was really actually quite surprised was he used this example of um, he and his wife ran across a fellow uh, a psychological researcher uh, named John at the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, while they were on vacationing, uh, while he and his wife were vacationing. And then um, a th- about two weeks later, they were in a theater in London and a latecomer came, came and sat next to me after the lights went down. When the lights came up, I saw that it was that my neighbor was John. And he said, you know, my wife and I were surprised uh, at ourselves that uh, we would have, that we would have been more surprised if we'd met any acquaintance other than John in the next seat of a London theater. And he says, by any measure of probability, meeting John in the theater was much less likely than meeting any one of our hundreds of acquaintances yet meeting John seemed more normal. And actually that's a miss. That's a, that, that that's a mistaken way of rendering probability there. In fact, if John tends to travel more than other than others of their acquaintances, they are more, in fa- they are in fact more likely to see John there than they are, other friends of theirs who may not travel internationally as often. And if they're uh, friends, they, they probably have similar interests. And yeah. And, and well, and, and, you know, other hundreds of acquaintances, uh, if anything, you, that you, you would make the case that seeing their other acqu- hundreds of acquaintances, there would be no, no, no more probable. So, you know, and it would be no more or no less would be the default. And then if he travels more then it is slightly more, more probable. So, that betrays a little bit of a of a mistake in in in, in uh, representing statistics. Which again, there are a few places in here where I was a little bit surprised by by those kinds of comments. And and again, the hot hand fallacy was a bit of an issue, um, and some of the some of those things. But all right, that so, doesn't uh, take away from the strength of the book as a whole. But how, how about because I, th- I if I recall correctly, this came in the same part. What about organizations? What about businesses? Because he takes on. Good to great, good to great by Jim Collins, and says a lot of the companies that Jim Collins highlighted in that book after that book was written regressed to the mean, or, or uh, they weren't hot anymore, and they they had a period of of uh, or they had a downturn after after that being highlighted in that book. Is is that similar? I mean, because we're talking about individual uh, athletes compared to 
huge organizations. Was, yeah. was he more on? Was he? I think was there was he a, better I, on with well, that. Well, the thing is, it's interesting there too because elsewhere in the book, on at least two occasions, he says that companies or stocks that have been doing well, that have that have gone up or have you know increased in value or whatever, uh, are consistently more likely to continue their improvement at least in the short run. Mm-hmm. Well, think about that. And, and he actually critiques investors for the tendency to sell the company that has gone up because, well, if it's a winner now, odds are, according to the data, it's going to be a winner. It's more likely to be a winner in the near future than a loser. So don't yeah. sell your winner because it's more likely to continue winning. Yeah. But that's actually at odds with the idea of reversion to the mean. Right. This idea of there being a mean for companies at large to say, well, you know, what you would expect then is, well, this company's done well now, so we need to sell. That's actually yeah. what you would conclude if you based everything on reversion to the mean, because, well, they've, you know, they've done well, but we can expect them to revert to the mean for companies in general after that. Yeah. So I, I, again, I thought that his, his explanation of reversion to the mean was, um, was problematic. And, and again, it, it, um, I think it, uh, it was at odds with his explanation of, of other companies uh, or of companies' performance elsewhere. Uh, I do think that it's not entirely, he's not entirely wrong. And I do think that, that the good to great thing, the, the critique there, he's right that the, the companies that were profiled in good to great after the book was published did not do as well. Um, I'm less likely to assign that to say reversion to the mean as I am to other factors uh, I'm I'm less likely to to give that that uh, that explanation than uh, than Kahneman, but uh, and and of course these are debated topics in economics, but um, but you know I do think it's important to recognize that no company, no individual is going to man- manage to maintain a high level of performance relative to everyone else or or the field forever. Every everything has an end of life cycle, and so there is a peak. Of performance to ev- for every individual or company, identifying except, that's really difficult. Except for Randy Moss. Well, yeah, yeah, and Eddie Van Halen, and Jerry Rice. Yes, Joe Montana. Yeah, well, <laughs> but anyway, but he yeah, had Jerry Rice. So. But no, I mean that that um, I, I think I think it, it, we can oftentimes get misled by uh. And I, I think if he has a if, if there is a flaw there, I think his flaw is going to be uh, going to be going towards what the basically reading a lack of causality in the numbers or lack of causality in other things, because the numbers say that the numbers are actually the causal thing, whereas actually, I think in many cases, numbers or the statistics uh, help provide an explan- explanatory window on what happened, but they don't actually it's not necessarily a, uh, a sufficient explanation to say, well, yeah, that just follows probability mm-hmm. because every event that ever happens is actually improbable in the grand scheme of things. Right. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking today is, is astronomically improbable. If we're going to start at, you know, three centuries ago before, uh, you know, our grand, our grandparents, grandparents, grandparents met one another and all that and it all culminates in us talking on this podcast it takes a tremendous amount of 
a tremendous number of improbable events to lead to that. Mm -hmm. But then regarding those things as improbable is actually potentially a a flaw in how we understand probability. And I think this is where Talib's stuff on skin in the game and, um, and, uh, and some of his recent work on understanding probabilities a little bit more robustly rather than just looking at the numbers and, and regarding probability as having some sort of causal function uh, is, is important. That's where, again, I think Talib is, is, is useful there. Uh, and, and actually that's another place where Talib I think is right. And the behavioral school is, is mistaken uh, is, Talib actually in 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 um, skin in the game discusses the the uh, the problem of um, that that a lot of behavioral psychologists talk about that um, that you sh- that you should regard like if you get um, if you're given if you're given five dollars that you didn't have. At a, at, you know, say at a casino, most people would be more willing to gamble with that $5 than they would be with what they walked in with. And most, and, and there's some discussion of this in this book, and most behavioral uh, economists would say that's irrational because it's your money. Once you have it, it's your money no matter what. So regarding that as from a different pool isn't a mistake. And and this is what, um, again, on that same Econ Talk podcast, uh, Talib talks about this. Uh he says, uh, behavioral economists have said something called mental accounting, which states exactly what you talking to Russ Roberts just said that treating money according to source is irrational because these are one period models. And he said, here's the problem. That's how they view the world as a one shot experiment. They don't view the world as a repetition, a repetition of bets. So if you look at the world as a repetition of bets under condition of survival, then mental accounting is not only irrational, is not only not irrational, but is necessary. Any other strategy would be effectively irrational. Now, there is some discussion in uh, Kahneman's book here of treating things as repetition and a repetition of bets. But even that is sort of a one set of a repetition. What Taleb says is actually if you play long enough, unless you engage in strategies where you do have that kind of mental accounting, if you play, unless you engage in those strategies to prevent yourself from completely getting cleaned out, everyone ultimately loses in the end. You, you eventually hit the zero bound. And he says, so uh, he says, in other words, you start bet. If you start betting in a casino, the strategy is as follows. You go in with a hundred, whatever you want, and you bet $1. If you lose your bet, you let bet less than a dollar. If you, you bet, say 90 cents or whatever. And if you make money, you start betting with the house money. And this is called playing with the market money or playing with the house money. And so you increase your bet as you're making money and you reduce your bet as you're losing money. That strategy is practically the only one that allows you to gamble or engage in risky strategy without ruin. I find that explanation from Taleb extremely persuasive and it's a critique of the kind of approach of, of behavioral psychologists and to some degree of Kahneman in this book of you shouldn't make a different, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take a different approach to the money that you just won or that you just got from uh, got in a gift from what you would from your baseline. That's irrational. And Taleb said, no, actually you're, you're engaging in a, in a more sophisticated survival strategy that is actually rational and the behavioral economists haven't quite understood that. 
Interesting. Uh, because you, you, um, I have a couple of Talib books on uh, my list for this year, and I, I believe you were the one that uh, recommended <laughs> those as well. So, but Skin in the Game was not out yet, so uh, that's not not one of them. But um, perhaps uh, perhaps next year. So, any any other critiques before we uh, we hit the conclusions? Yeah, I got one more, and this was a doozy. <laughs> so he uh, he makes the case. He's he's making a case about um, about. Uh, the, the, the way that history works. And he says, uh, the often used image of the march of history implies order and direction. Marches, unlike strolls or walks, are not random. We think that we should be able to explain the past by focusing either on large social movements and cultural or, and technological developments or the intentions and, and abilities of a few great men. The idea that large historical events are determined by luck is profoundly shocking, though it is demonstrably true. It is hard to think of the history of the 20th century, including its large social movements, without bringing in the role of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. But there was a moment in time, just before an egg was fertilized, when there was a 50-50 chance that the embryo that became Hitler could have been a female. Compounding the three events, there was a probability of one-eighth of a 20th century that, without any of the three great villains, and it is impossible to argue that history would have been roughly the same in their absence. The fertilization of these three eggs had momentous consequences, and it makes a joke of the idea that long-term developments are predictable. And I, I read this and went, um, that's a problem. Not only is it not impossible to argue that history would have been roughly the same in their absence, it's fundamentally correct to make that argument. Had Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong never, li- never lived, the 20th century probably would have been more or less similar to there would have been some differences due to personality, but the, the, the outcome of the 20th century would have been more or less the same. It would have been similar to what it was with them. This is one of the insights that my students have to walk away from, from my class on uh, Jewish Christian relations, which I've taught multiple times. Uh, my students walk away from that class after we've talked about the Holocaust for weeks shocked and one one i've had multiple students that have said you know i used to think that if you could just go back in time and 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 kill hitler before he came into power you know go back and have hitler aborted or something you know kill him as a child then you could have prevented the holocaust but after reading this stuff and looking at what was going on and looking at how people were and just the, the 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 trends that were going on it would have happened without hitler just as much as it did. Like it may have been, it may have happened a little bit differently, but it would have happened either way. They, they, the people were going to do this. The Chinese revolution did not depend on Mao's existence the same way. The, 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 the revolution in the USSR did not depend on Stalin. Those men just filled the void that was that, that someone else would have come in and filled had they not existed. So and, and actually the irony here is that he's actually making the great man of history fallacy. The idea that, you know, this one great man changed, you know, changed everything and it wouldn't have happened without him. And that's there, there are some things that would never have happened without without certain great individuals. I, I think that's true. But by and large, and, and this is where I think. Um, uh, who did the. Who did the book that. um it was like the third book we did. Um, oh, geez. 
22 Immutable Laws. No. Um, Old Man the Sea, National Born Heroes. No, it was after that then, so it wasn't as far far back as I thought. It was... Heraclitean Fire, number 20. Wow. Um yeah, so I uh, so I think it was Ir- I think it was uh, Ir- Irvin uh, Ch- uh, uh, Chargoff in um, Heraclitean Fire that he talks about like listen if someone hasn't if so- if some scientist doesn't make a specific scientific discovery that doesn't mean that scientific discovery is not going to get made somebody else is going to come in and figure it out at some point and there's some truth to that in, in the general thrust of history too. And I think he, he neglects that in his efforts to say, well, you know, there's everything's basically random. It's just improbability is, you know, just luck is governing everything. No, these social movements matter. And the, the, the thing is on the aggregate, things are are going in specific directions. Now, the flip side to that is that each individual, one of us does have impact in where everything is going. And how it gets from point A to point B. So Hitler did have an impact. Stalin did have an impact, a direct impact on how on how things went. But you know the 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 uh, there is that chaos theory that you know everything impacts everything else. But again, in their absence, we'd still have probably had something like the Holocaust. We would have still had communism. We still would have had a lot of these things even without them. Maybe a little well, different. I, I just listened to uh, James Altucher interview Jordan Peterson and Peterson was at the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C. And he said at the top, when you walk in, it says, never forget. And he said, never, never forget what? <laughs> but and, and that's at, at every Holocaust Museum. And he, he said, uh, it's not about never forgetting what happened. It's never forget that you you could have been the nazi you could you could have done this yeah and that's that that's one of the things that, again my students have walked away from go you know i i i remember vividly uh one class where we were talking about the holocaust and i had my students at the end of that class just sort of sitting silently and i had a couple students just sit there and just sort of say quietly like we could totally do this yeah like, i could totally see this sort of thing happening here and that's scary yeah it's, yeah <laughs> yep never forget that's what we shouldn't forget hitler yeah. was not some unique monster that's the frightening thing yeah yeah well uh <laughs> should we should we head to conclusions on that bright note <laughs> yeah i think i think maybe we should maybe we should wrap it up um i i loved it as i said at the beginning it's uh it's my number two favorite out of out of all of them. Uh, that's sixty books so far that I've read between last year and this year for the Books of Titans project. Uh, this is number two. I think it's just a really important book, it, and it's something since I've read it that I've thought about almost daily. Uh, we think all the time. We're thinking constantly. So to be able to to take a step back and and see how we think about things, how we have system one versus system two, and and how those interplay and, and how it can trick us and how, uh, how to just be aware of those things, if nothing else, I think is, is, is an incredibly important, important thing. As you mentioned, it's a, it's a long book. It, um, it was one where I spent a lot of time in it. I had to read it very slowly 
and uh, I, I took a ton of notes on it, underlined a lot. So just the, the process of putting these ideas together in, in notes, uh, writing in the back of the book, all, all, all these things, it, it took a tre- tremendous amount of time, but I didn't, I didn't want to rush it. I, I really wanted to take it in because uh, just right away you could tell that this was, was something special. Uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, um, just my last thought here, uh, really uh, the one I remember the most is, is Once an Eagle, where we talked about Once an Eagle covering a lot of the lessons that we saw in a lot of the other Books of Titans books. Same thing with this one. We read a lot of psychology books last year. I, I would say you could get rid of all those, not read any <laughs> of those, and just read this one and 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 have that be the, be the benefit. I mean, he covers a lot of the stuff that's covered in those books, but he covers it better than those books. And, uh, I I was just starting to get frustrated with, with a lot of those ones last year where it was repeating the same examples, uh, over and over. But this one had a lot of new examples, a lot of, of different twists. And even the ones where it was the same example, he, he, he came at it from a different point of view. So, uh, I, I recommend this one. And uh, yeah, just a, a good one to uh, in in a business sense, in a, a psychology sense. If you're an economics student, you would you would you would find it interesting. Uh, just a lot of applications in in a variety of fields. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I completely agree with that. With some of the caveats that I've I've already put in uh, throughout the episode. Uh, I don't think that the that some of the limitations, uh, particularly in that central section. Uh, diminish the the value of the book i think uh uh i think this is one of the most valuable books that's been published in the last 10 or so years uh it's one that i I think would uh, be very good to have assigned to every uh college college student or high school student i would prefer a high school student but uh it will take some time for most people uh and it's worth spending that time and drinking in a little bit so um so yeah it's uh I, I recommend it. I think uh, I think it's it, uh, it's important to read it and to acknowledge that in some way, shape, or form, we all do process the way that he talks about and uh, and mm-hmm. learning to understand how we process things uh, can hopefully help us uh, lead to uh, or help lead us to uh, making better decisions and, and thinking more critically and clearly, which uh, is is something that only uh can can lead to to good to good outcomes i think both personally and in in terms of society at large Mm -hmm. well good that'll do it for us today uh thanks for listening thanks for for being here with us and uh next week we will probably be discussing uh one of the ones i've just read which will either be creativity inc or what i talk about when i talk about running so one one of those two, and um, if if you if you enjoyed what you heard today, we we'd appreciate a, a review on Apple Podcasts. It's probably the best place you can do it. And please share us on on the the Twitters and the the Instagrams, and you can find us at all those places at Books of Titans, as well as booksoftitans.com. So on behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rostad. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Keep reading and keep improving. And keep thinking. Fast or slow. Fast or or slow.
I made this. <laughs>